0: This season of Black and White is brought to you by Flatiron Wealth Management. Led by my good friend Andrew Shepard, Flatiron Wealth Management is an independent wealth management firm that is committed to building generational wealth for their clients. By constantly optimizing and diversifying its investment strategies, Flatiron helps you influence the economic factors that you can and to prepare for the ones you can't. Visit flatironwealth.com for more information. Link in the podcast description. Hello, welcome back to Black and White, a rallying place where we come together to learn and hold everyone gently to account. A podcast for the ally in all of us. I'm your host, Stephen Dorsey. My guest today is the incomparable Wes Hall. Many of you may know him as the newest dragon on the Dragon's Den, the original show that inspired the Shark Tank in the US. Wes has been leading the charge in Canada, having founded the Black North Initiative whose singular mission is to end anti-Black systemic racism throughout all aspects of our lives by utilizing a business-first mindset. And just this year, Wes Hall was named Canadian Business Leader of the Year. Congratulations, Wes. Welcome to Black and White.
1: Stephen, thanks for having me. Looking forward to our conversation here.
0: Amazing. So you and I connected on LinkedIn in October of 2020. So after the global reckoning following the murder of George Floyd, and I remember reading uh, an op-ed you had written in the Globe and Mail, which was on Mark and really inspired me. And I wrote you a note and you wrote back. And and actually, I wrote an op-ed in the Globe and Mail about eliminating white advantage and systemic racism. So we started this conversation on LinkedIn, but we actually have never met in person. <laughs> you yeah.
1: know, well, we haven't even met in person still. We're virtual. <laughs> no,
0: exactly. So it's good to finally be face-to-face at least. So uh, first of all, congratulations on the draft. Dragons, Dan. So uh, this is the 16th season of the show. It's hugely successful. Like I mentioned, it spawned the Shark Tank in the U.S. Tell me why you decided to join the show. I've watched it. I've watched you. I can see the difference on the show as a result of you. I think you're the first black dragon, uh, the first. Uh, So tell me uh, what inspired you. What do you think you're bringing that's different to the show?
1: Well, exactly what you just said, uh, the first. There's a lot of things that I've done in my career, Stephen, that I'm the first to have done it. And I'm the first to have been there. And when you're the first, it's very uncomfortable because a lot of people look at you and go, wait a minute, there's a lot of expectation. And all of a sudden, if I fail at something, then chances are that door will never be open for somebody else that looked like me. They're gonna say everybody else is gonna do just like Wes Hall has done. Of course. When I take on those opportunities, uh, for example, one of the big ones I did was this thing called Humor Me. It's a charity that raises uh, millions of dollars, millions to charities uh, uh, across the country in particular, the Sick Kids Hospital and so on. And they ask these senior executives, CEOs, big shots to go up on stage and uh, do a comedy skit in front of a thousand people. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they have to raise a minimum of $500,000 to get a privilege to be on stage. And I was always, I love the show, but I've never seen a black person on it ever. Interesting. And it's been going on for years, never. Yeah. And so I start complaining about, you know, you guys have no representation and this is ridiculous. Next thing you know, they asked me to be on stage and I go hmm, <laughs> I ain't doing that. <laughs> now I have to walk my talk. I don't talk to some other black dude. <laughs> in fact, I can find you one, but I'm not going to be that guy, right? And, uh, and then, but I realized a few things why we weren't asked, right? Not a lot of people are at our level. Like there's how many Fortune 500 CEOs uh, that are black in this country? Zero. TSX-60 CEOs, none, So all the high-profile people are not Black. But then you have entrepreneurs like myself and Michael Lee Chin that are very, very successful entrepreneurs, but we still was never asked. So now, with the attention being focused on successful, even though I appeared before uh, the George Floyd situation, they asked me and I go, hmm. But there's a systemic barrier, not only the, the systemic barrier of not having... Blacks as CEOs, because it's generally CEOs that they have on stage. Yes. Right? It's the half a million dollars that you also have to raise at a minimum to get on the stage. Right? Black people can't even raise 50 grand to start their own companies in this country.
0: Amen. Exactly.
1: Okay? Exactly. And then you have to raise half a million dollars to give away to charity. So I can't call somebody up in this country, literally, Stephen, and say, you know what? I have this amazing business idea. When I was starting Kingsdale, I have this amazing business idea to start this company, right? that ultimately within five years would value that $100 million, okay? And I went to every single financial institution to borrow $100,000 to start this amazing business and every single one of them gave me the thumbs down.
0: Excuse me, did you say $100,000, sir? <laughs> 100000
1: okay? And they now expect a black man to go out and raise half a million dollars to give away. Not to say to them they're gonna make a return on their investment, just give me 50,000 here, 100,000 there, 20,000 there, and they just give me the money. Now I did raise the half a million dollars, but I'm just saying that's a systemic problem. Of course, yes. So we go, let's look at all the systemic barriers. But if somebody, like when I did it, I had to win you compete with five executives, right? The, you know, the year I did it, I was competing. For example, Joe Natale was the CEO of Rogers. I was competing with him. I know I'm never going to raise more money than Joe because there's uh, two competition, right? Who can raise the most money and who can be the funniest? And I said, I'm going for the funniest because I'm not going to outraise Joe, right? right exactly. He's going to call up his suppliers and say, I need $50,000 right now, and they're going to send him a hundred. Yes. Okay? And so I don't have the same influence in terms of raising money. So I said, but I can be funnier. And here's how I'm going to be funnier. I'm just going to tell my life story up there. I'm not making anything up. So I went up and I talk about being the only black man in Rosedale and what happens to me being the only black man in, that, in a, in a, in a high-profile neighborhood, Okay. And I talk about being a black guy in Bay Street and what happened to me. And the funny thing about it is just like you see on television, guys are telling skits. It's real. These are real things that happen yeah, me,
0: yeah, It's right? like, if you remember the show, The Jeffersons, right? It's yeah, like, you know, up, you know, you're moving on up. You're representing.
1: I'm representing. And as a result of that, there's a lot of shots that you're going to get fired at you because when you walk into a room, first of all, you know, People on your podcast can't see the way you and I are dressed, but we're dressed pretty, pretty cool, okay? I have a pocket square on, I got a costume I'm, I'm in. Looking, I'm looking fly, right? And uh, But I never want, when I walk into a room, the first thing they criticize was my outfit because they don't wanna say anything about my color, but they're gonna be like, why is this guy dressed like that coming in the room, right? So they can't say my appearance turns them off right? He doesn't dress like an advisor. He doesn't dress like a lawyer. He doesn't dress like a banker, right? Because that's what people tend to go. Well, he doesn't look like a banker. Well, when I'm dressed like this and I walk into a room, what do I look like to you? I look the parts I'm playing, right? I look like a sex sell Bay Street guy. Okay. So why is it that all of a sudden you still feel that I'm disadvantaged in that room when I look like everybody else in that room other than my skin color?
0: Yeah. What, the yeah. obvious, of course. The
1: obvious, right? So, but I know that going in. So I got to go, well, I got to do something better than everybody else in this room. So when I was doing the comedy skit, I go, I got to be funnier than everybody else. And I'm telling you, Stephen, I was funny that night, man.
0: <laughs> you I was you was killed. You I killed, killed, as they said. Yes.
1: You know? So when we do anything, when we do anything and we're the first, we have to kill it. So you talk about Dragon's Den, when they call up and said, hey, Wes, we want you on television. Again, it's the same thing with humor me. I could say, choose another black dude. I've never done television before. I don't want to embarrass myself. I don't want to embarrass my culture, right? So choose somebody else. But I go, I have to make myself uncomfortable because I'm paving the way for other people. So guess what happens? I'm on the show. People go, wow, he's not that bad, actually. And all of a sudden they go, wait a minute, you mean black people are just as capable as everybody else? Duh. Right? It's like, you know, so so they go, oh, and, and by the way, he's actually rich. He's got money. In fact, some people Twitter, you know, tweet me and send me social media stuff saying, is that your own money or CBC's money that you're spending? Of course. <laughs> right. I'm sure Kevin O'Leary doesn't get that. Uh, and none of the other dragons uh, get that. Saying Dick that. Arlene. Arlene doesn't get it. I no. tell you, Arlene is my friend and she doesn't get it. She's none wonderful. none of the dragons get it, right? Yeah. But I get it, right? Because they go, we don't believe that there are rich black people in this country. But guess what? There are a lot of us.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> that so, mean, so on that note, you know, I've seen let's face it, uh, a lot more people of color, black people come and pitch on the show. I'm assuming you had something to do with that. And of course, now, you know, as you said, black people, people of color, indigenous people in this country go to the, have you know traditionally gone to the bank for hundreds of years and been turned down or heard an excuse of why they couldn't get a loan. But now this is another avenue. Okay, it's a show and everything, but you're giving out you're actually investing in real companies.
1: dude, i uh, I met some amazing entrepreneur. I met this young black guy from Hudson. He was on the show last season and he came in. And and one of the things we look for as dragons is we look for how poised the entrepreneur is. How we answer the question, does he know his numbers or, or she, you know, how they respond to us as dragons, for example. Are they intimidated and so on? And this guy came in. And he's doing this fintech business to help underserved communities, get into the banking systems and so on, and helping with the credit and and so on. He's really serving a need in the market. And the first thing that you do is that, is this serving an identifiable need? Is this product serving an identifiable need? Number one, bam, hit it out of the park. Does it make financial sense? Done. He answered all the questions. And Michelle is a tech person on the show. She drilled this guy big time, hit them all out of the park. And then it's my turn. We put half a million dollars in his business. Wow. Like we closed the deal. He's got half a million dollars of my money in his business. And he just graduated university. See entrepreneurs, it doesn't mean that you have to do done it 20 years, 30 years. There are guys who I just presented to Harvard Business School yesterday.
0: I saw that on your right? feed. Yeah.
1: I saw that on feed. And all those kids in that class, all of them, If you if you look at the LinkedIn feed that I put out with the pictures that I took of the students... Black students, all of them were amazing entrepreneurs because this is the MBA program. So these guys have done things, and then they decided to go back to Harvard to complete their MBA. Some of them are PhD students, and they decided to go ahead and do their MBA at Harvard. And and I look at these kids, and I'm hearing their questions in the class and stuff, and I'm like, wow, these kids are brilliant. Every single one of them, because it's an entrepreneurial program, every single one of them have one problem. They can't get capital.
0: Of course. You're out there, you're representing, you're, you're modeling. I think that's really super important right now. Um, so Wes, you know, I have a, I'm not Jamaican, you know, and- I but won't I,
1: hold that against you, man. No, no, no but
0: but the, the thing is, is 30 years ago this year, I got a job at the Jamaican Pavilion in Seville, Spain. And that is, that was my introduction to Jamaica. And I've been going to Jamaica for the last 30 years. I have friends in Kingston, Stony Hill. I hang out in Port Antonio, Michael E. All right. Uh, right. Tony's so one
1: of my favorite places in Jamaica, by the uh,
0: way. Yes, man. So- Uh, Your life story, and you're only, you just turned, you're just in your early 50s, but your life story, really, it's a rags to riches story. And people haven't been to Jamaica. It's like many Caribbean countries where there's a lot of wealth. Uh, it concentrated in the class system. You know, I always joke about Jamaica. They say, no, no, we don't have uh, racism in Jamaica. We have class system. It just, yeah, it just so happens that mostly white people are the rich people, right? And uh, But there's a lot of poor people, mostly black people, and people actually live in tin shacks, you know? When
1: people hear the stories, like, okay, this guy's crazy, until they actually see the place and they go, yeah, it is a tin shack. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: So, so, Wes, tell us about growing up in Jamaica, I've been through that area many times on my way to Port Antonio, taking the long way. So I know where you're from. I love that island. I love the people, I love the resilience, perseverance. But tell me about growing up really in humble beginnings and what that taught you. And then how did you get yourself to Canada and and really start yourself onto the path you're on now?
1: It's a good question because, uh, and and by the way, Stephen, if you drive by there again, you will not see my neighborhood. A few years ago, the government came in and just kind of took a bulldozer and just... It was an eyesore mm-hmm. to the world, especially with a guy like me uh, bringing attention to it. But when I was growing up there, my grandmother raised me, and uh, I have fourteen brothers and sisters. But she didn't raise all of us; she raised most of us. She uh, like most of my mom's kids. She raised as well as uh, my cousins and so on. So we, at a given time, she would have like eleven to twelve kids in a two bedroom tin shack. Crazy. And she worked on three plantations: uh, sugarcane, banana, and coconut plantations. And I remember being a child and she would bring us, because we weren't out of school age when she took us in, she brought us to the plantation to work with her because she had no babysitters. We didn't have the babysitters back then. And everybody else that lived in the plantation house, because the house was given to the plantation workers, because they worked for next to nothing. So the least they could do is give them a place to live while they work in a plantation. That's what we see back in the 1800s, mm-hmm. uh, the 1900s early 1900s, whereby these slaves in, in the South were given a plantation house to live and so they can work on a plantation for, for free. Exactly. So in Jamaica, we lived in the plantation house, but we worked on, on the plantation for next to nothing. They couldn't have us work for free because that would be slavery and that was abolished, but they could pay us pennies, right? And that's what they did. So I remember being a child and uh, putting bananas in boxes to get exported, I remember picking up coconuts and put them in piles. And I remember sitting there watching my grandmother chopping sugarcane and then me picking them up and put them in piles with her. I remember that vividly, like it was yesterday doing that. And so when I tell the story, as you mentioned, Stephen, I'm 52 years old. This is my reality. I lived through that. Yes, man. And, And if you go to Jamaica today, if that neighborhood had existed still, those people would be living exactly the same way.
0: I see it all the time.
1: Yes. You know, the only difference is because of hurricanes over the years, the coconut plantations are gone because the coconut trees are high and they get blown over over the years. And, you know, the plantation owners go, we're not going to do this anymore. But if you go there, you'll see fields and fields of sugarcane and fields and fields of banana. And I still have relatives working on those plantations today in substandard housing today, okay? So when I think about poverty and injustices and changing lives and changing attitudes and stuff like that, I look at my grandmother's example of generosity and industriousness. She didn't complain about working on a plantation. She didn't complain about raising all these grandkids. She just did it and she didn't even have the means to do any of it. She had to work multiple after she finished the sugar cane or the banana. After 10 hours, she has to go cultivate her own property to grow her own stuff, to sell it in the market so that she can get money for meats and get money for different things that we're going to need as a family.
0: Chicken, goat, everything.
1: Chicken, goat. Yes. And I, if, if people know what, uh, I'm going to describe my favorite food growing up. It's called curry chicken back. Curried chicken back people. All right. What is that? So what happens is the rich people would get the legs and would get the, uh, the side, all the parts of the chicken. That's that's good. And they'd leave the bone, which is the back of the chicken. It's all bone. There's no meat in it. And they would sell it to poor people. And poor people would curry it up and cook it so nice that all of a sudden the rich people go, we don't want the other part of the chicken anymore. We want the back. The back became so expensive we couldn't even afford it anymore. Then we start to go. Let's go inside the chicken now, (laughs) right? (laughs) Let's let's get hard. Let's get the gills. Let's get all the other things inside. Then we start cooking that up, and they go chicken foot, chicken foot. We used to eat chicken foot soup, chicken foot soup. Okay, and then all of a sudden the rich people go, we want that too. Then it's out of reach for us. Then we have to go for another animal, okay, or another way of getting. Then we go to the the cows. We couldn't eat all the other parts of the cows, like the ribs and, the, you know, and, and and all that stuff. So what do we do? Oxtail. We go for the tail and we start making oxtail. And the rich people go, man, those people make really good oxtail. Now the oxtail is out of reach.
0: Yeah. You tried to Everybody, buy oxtail
1: lately? That's expensive yeah, now. <laughs> expensive. Because poor people, that's the only thing they could afford because it was thrown away before. Okay, so I know what it's like to actually, when, when something gets out of reach, to go to something else when something you got to reach to move to something else, because you know what? I'm not going to complain about it. It's out of my snack bracket. So I'm going to focus on something else, right? So when I started Kingsdale, let's create something that didn't exist before, right? Because that's what entrepreneurs do. They look at a need in the market and they go, I'm going to fill it. But guess what? When you fill something, just like the oxtail, just like the chicken back, somebody else go, that's successful. I'm going to emulate it. And you have to now pivot And just keep on moving and do something else to keep ahead of them because they're not creative. They're not gonna try to do something on their own because they don't know how. So they look for people who are creative, who are industrious to figure it out for them. So that's what my, my poverty helped me to do. It helped me to pivot and it helped me to stay ahead of people. It helped me to be creative. And as a result of that pivoting and that creativeness and that industriousness that I learned from my grandmother. I'm always ahead of people. I'm always ahead. And I'm willing to try something for the first time and see how it tastes. And if it tastes really good, like going on Dragon's Den, going on, uh, 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 you know, on Humor Me, if it tastes really good, I'm okay if other people emulate it. I'll figure something else out to keep things going.
0: You'll keep on moving for sure. I had conversations, you know, uh, Orlando Bowen. Yep. uh, Have you met him? Great, very inspirational and had a a great chat with him yesterday. We were talking, he's also from from Jamaica and um, and I was just saying to him, you know, in my 30 years of going to Jamaica and just hearing your story, the resilience and perseverance of the people of Jamaica to me is incredible. There's a lot of issues in Jamaica with financials, all kinds of stuff. But, you know, I said to him like, there's, you know, just over two and a half million people in Jamaica. Can you name a food that comes to, it? of course, you know, Jamaican patties, jerk chicken. Can you name music, reggae music? Can you name a religion? Rastafari, right? <laughs> There's a branded color. There's the, I, I, I mean, how does that happen in a country that small? It's because people, like you said, they have to figure out what to do with the chicken foot. Yes. You know? So, so I Wes, you uh, make your way to Canada as a teenager to live with your father. You're moving forward all the time. You want your independence. You move out. And then, really, you go get an education, you start your career, and you're off to the races. And I want you to tell us that part of the story, because this is what leads you to this exponential success that we know you for today. So we'll be right back. Hey, everyone. If you've listened to Season 1 of Black and White, you know that my amazing guests and I have often discussed the wealth gap issue that persists between the BIPOC and non-BIPOC communities. Disadvantage of opportunity caused in part by wealth inequalities is something I know firsthand as a black man who started out in life from challenging circumstances. More than 10 years ago, I turned to Andrew Shepard and his team at Flatiron Wealth Management to help me set a course for a better financial future for my family, by setting tangible financial goals and putting place informed investment strategies. At that time, Andrew and his team reviewed my needs, which included long-term planning for the eventual retirement I envisioned, and making sure we had a safety net in place in case things went wrong along the way. Most importantly, Andrew heard me when I told him that priority number one was to secure a better future for my kids, one which would see them have as many opportunities as possible. Through a collaborative process, the Flatiron team recommended a strategy for my kids, which included a savings plan, partly anchored in a governmental educational savings program, combined with a participatory insurance product that would allow my kids to have millions of dollars of life insurance coverage, paid for in 20 years at the lowest cost possible. Surprising to me, this plan would also enable my kids to borrow from the insurance policy to pay for college, to put a down payment on a house, or to invest in a business. Key foundational pillars to building generational wealth. It's truly been an amazing 10 years with Flatiron. I've seen the direct benefit of their financial management services. Positive forward momentum realized year after year. If you're in need of solid financial management advisory services, give Andrew and his team at Flatiron a call. You'll be happy you did. Welcome back to Black and White. I'm here with the man himself, Wes Hall. We we're having an amazing conversation. Wes, we were just talking about uh, you've moved to Canada as a young man. You've uh, lived with your father for a couple of years. You decide, you know what, I want to be my, my own man. Move out, you're 18. Tell us about that path and and where you ended up.
1: So um, first of all, I'm going to describe. So I came here September 27th, 1985. And uh, I, went into, uh, uh, I went into the uh, school on the Monday. So I came on Friday, I was in school on Monday. And uh, Stephen, guess what? I went into sc- uh, class because, you know, in high school, you have to meet with a guidance counselor when you start grade nine. And uh, so they dropped me back a grade, first of all, because they go, well, this kid came from Jamaica, he's got to be dumb. So they dropped me back a grade. And, uh, and then I went into class, my classes, and nobody was speaking English. So I said to my dad, hey, school is easy in Canada. Nobody's speaking English. And he's like, what do you mean? You only look to see, I'm in the ESL program. English as a second language, when my first language is English. It just so (laughs) happened that I spoke it with this heavy Jamaican accent. I keep saying, yeah, "Yeah, you know, but I didn't say what, man, when the teacher asked me a question in class, okay, I put my hand up, and I say, with my, the best, you know, English I know, uh, whatever the answer is, and I remember kids were laughing, because they loved the accent, they thought it was interesting. But they un- understood me. So the, but the, the, the guidance counselor thought, let me put him in the ESL program. My dad went to school, got me out of it. Then I went back a few weeks later to my dad and said, hey, school is still easy. I said, look at my curriculum, only to find out that there are three streams when I was there. There's basic, applied, and academic, right? They called it advanced back then. Yeah. And they put me in the basic stream because not only did I have this he- heavy Jamaican accent, I clearly was really dumb. So they gave me the basic stream, meaning that you just have to show up with a pulse to school and you'll graduate.
0: For those of you who aren't in Canada and Ontario, but when we're talking about systemic racism baked into the systems in the institution, the streaming of black people of color and indigenous kids in this country, the system is making a judgment of your future when you're in grade nine, when you're in grade nine. They're deciding. And so if if you go, they'll say, oh, you're going in basic or applied. Maybe he'll become an electrician if he's lucky, maybe a plumber. And we know that a exponential amount of Black kids get put into those streams. And as a result, more of them don't graduate from high school. And of course, it's the reverse in the academic stream, right? So you're describing exactly one of the major issues that continues today, Wes.
1: Continues to this day. There's an article last week in the Ottawa newspaper that they put these Black kids in the stream, lower stream, and the parents were just finding about it. And some of those kids started kindergarten in that stream. So what happens is, and I'll explain to people what happens when you're streamed. If my dad didn't go in and fight for me to put me into a higher stream, I would continue in basic. I would have graduated because it's not very difficult to graduate when you're learning two plus two, literally. All right? That's your math. You're not learning calculus or anything. You never see what a calculus trig- is.
0: Trigonometry? What is yeah, that? Trigonometry. <laughs> you
1: don't even know those expressions. They won't exist it's to you when you graduate. Your peers are telling you, hey, I'm, I'm in a trig class. And you're like, what is trig? Okay, because you'll never see it. And then you graduate, and then all of a sudden, all those kids in the uh, academic programs are going off to university. And then you're going, you can't even get into community college because you don't even have the grade to get into community college. So you have to go learn a trade. Or you know what? There's a lot of jobs that you don't really need an education to do. Go figure one of those out. So what does that do? Because I have no university education, it prevents me from getting one of those fancy jobs on Bay Street or Wall Street. I will never be there. And that's the reason why, when you look at the top of Wall Street and Bay Street, it's devoid of black people and indigenous people. It's devoid of them because they've been streamed all their entire school life. Okay? And then what happens is that, you know, go, we're fighting. So we have generations of black people in this country that are being treated like that to this day, to this day. And so we need to stop those systemic racism because it's a system that's saying, this is where these people belong. And that's when we talk about systemic racism, people say, well, I'm not racist. We're not calling you racist. We're saying, no, you know, if you are born in Canada and you are not black, you're not a person of color, you're not indigenous, chances are you will not be streamed. Yeah. And if you're not, they're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. They're going to look at you, look at what neighborhood you came from, look at your parents, and they go, we're going to put you in the academic uh, stream. And if you can't do it, somebody's going to say, well, you know, we tried. Let's just see what you can handle.
0: Exactly. You know, I've had so many conversations about white privilege. And and I, in my book, I've used a new term called white advantage. And I say, they said, well, what are you talking about? You know, I said, well, the fact that you as as, uh, white kids, white parents don't have to worry really about, for the most part, that your kids are being streamed is an advantage over people of color, black people, right? Like this is an advantage you just have, you may not even be aware of it because it's not happening to you, right? And then the other point you were making there, Wes, is, you know, the streaming and not being able to go to university and not getting those jobs, which, as you know, affects how much money you make. And what right? neighborhoods
1: live in. As where, you,
0: where you live. And over time, there's one group that their wealth continues to grow. They can buy land. They can buy real estate. I know we're going to talk about this, but you can then have equity and you can borrow from that equity to send your kids to university, to a, maybe a better university, right? And so on. So this wealth gap, and th- it's this generational stuff, which we'll get into. So,
1: so when I graduated, finally, after all that stuff, I graduated high school. But uh, before I graduated, I my dad was a strict guy, right? I told you I was raised by my grandmother and my dad left Jamaica when I was one. And uh, so I don't really, I didn't really know him. So I came here and literally my dad wanted to be dad. Like you gotta come home at this time, you gotta go to bed at this time, you gotta do this, you gotta take out the garbage, you gotta do all this stuff. And if you know my full story, you'd know that I lived with my grandmother until I was 11. Then I lived with my mom. And then I got thrown out at 13 from my mom's house. And from 13 to 16, I was living on my own in Jamaica, hustling on my own, sending myself through school, making my own money. And then I came to Canada, and my dad is now saying, hey, boy, go take the garbage out. Hey, boy, you need to come home from school at this time. It was tough for me to handle. So two years later, when I'm senior year of high school, I moved out. And uh, I didn't have any skills. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, came, I was in Malvern. I didn't see opportunities. I figured that I'm just going to do menial tasks and I'm going to get along. This job I had was a chicken catcher, and I call myself the chicken grim reaper. Really, that's what that job is, because these chickens would come off these trucks in cages, and my job was to catch the chickens, put them on a conveyor belt upside down, and they would go down the conveyor belt, and their heads will be chopped off. That was my job, the chicken grim reaper. And after doing that job and the chickens scratching my hands when they know what's going to happen to them, I couldn't do it anymore. And I went to the HR department and I said, yeah, I can't do this job. They said, okay, we have another job for you. Don't worry. They sent me to an assembly line where the chickens are now, get their head chopped off, their feathers are gone. They're now upside down. And my job was to put a vacuum up their rear and suck everything out. And all I hear for eight hours is, for eight hours, I was getting woozy. I was sick. I'm like, I can't do this for a living. And they, I went back to the HR department and I said, well, I have no other jobs here that suits your qualification. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I quit that day. All right. And the fact of the matter is that because of the lack of opportunities and the people that I saw around me in Malvern that were Black that didn't have those opportunities, I didn't know any better. And then I go, well, I got to find a job someplace. And uh, my buddy got a, applied for a job at, the, uh, at a law firm on Bay Street. Didn't know where Bay Street was, by the way. And he said he got another job. So he said to the person, thankfully, hey, my buddy is looking for a job. And here's the iron- irony of the story. That buddy is is working for me now. Okay.
0: Amazing. Of course. But
1: here's the thing. And he said, I, but I have a job. I have a buddy of mine. So my buddy said, call West. They called me and they hired me over the phone because it was a time when all you had to do was have a pulse and you get a job. They hired me over the phone. I showed up and they go, you can start on Monday. And I started in the mailroom. I saw what was possible for the very first time in my life, that there's a different life other than catching chickens and working in menial jobs. I saw people were in business suits. I saw fancy offices. I saw wealth, success. And I go, I want this. I want this. And even though I was in the mailroom, the very start of the rung of that ladder, I didn't care because I'm going to climb that ladder as far as that ladder will allow me to climb. And when they say stop climbing, I'm going to still climb. And they got to kick me off that ladder. <laughs> they have to kick me off. Somebody has to stop at the top of the ladder and just go down. And I'm there. they got to kick hard. Because guess what?
0: You're holding when you're a on,
1: black, dad, black <laughs> woman climbing the ladder. You're gonna get a lot of people kicking you off that ladder, or try to kick you off that ladder, and you have to hang on tight and just keep going. Eventually, you would think that they would stop, but it doesn't matter how successful you get, they do not stop.
0: I call those. I called in my book. I described a lot of headwinds. Oh.
1: Right?
0: It's like all the extra. You know, I like you. I've had measured success along the line, but I always thought to myself, I wonder How much more, you know, if I didn't have to spend all this extra energy just fighting the headwinds, right? No,
1: And if we describe when we think about it for describing to people, and we use it in financial terms all the time, there's a lot of headwinds or a lot of tailwinds, right? Tailwinds, that's good, right? The people of privilege, they get the tailwind, meaning that there's people behind them pushing them along and saying, you can do this. I'm going to pave the way to make it successful. When you have a headwind, it's people in front of you pushing your back saying, no, you can't go ahead. You can't go ahead and keep on pushing your back. And they don't understand that it doesn't matter how successful you get as a black person, that you will always experience headwinds, always. And the more successful you get, the the stronger the headwind becomes. Because when you're working, when I was in mailroom, nobody thought I would be successful, so they didn't bother me. When I got my first promotion, somebody looked around and said, "Okay, got a little promotion, but it doesn't really make a difference. It doesn't really bother me. Once you start to move up, you start to threaten people's livelihood and people's place in society that you're taking up that they should have. And then they go, there's a problem with that. Right. So all of a sudden now I'm living in Rosedale and somebody's saying he's living in my house.
0: They want your oxtail.
1: Yes, they want my oxtail. I want to take my oxtail so that I can go someplace else and figure it out, right? And, and so you, you, you're in places and you're taking up spaces that people in their minds believe, this is mine. This is mine. Now, they didn't work as hard as you. They may not be as smart as you. They will never do the things that you're able to do to get into that space. But in their mind, their privilege Allow them to be in that space and you don't belong there. So I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that you don't belong there. So we see stuff, people say stuff on social media. That's not true. People send out rumors. That's not true. All kinds of things that they do is that headwind coming at you that you now have to defend because when you're a nobody, nobody cares. Uh,
0: it's so true, Wes. So so tell me, you know, uh, you climbed that ladder. I know your story. You've just kept moving and moving and moving and moving. And then you decide... It's time I can do my own thing here, Again, yeah, right? So what was that spark? What gave you, I mean, uh, just knowing your story, I know you have the courage and you have the passion, but what sparked you to do it?
1: Those headwinds that I talk about, the more successful I got in my company, the company I was working for, the more challenges that I was experiencing from my colleagues and in particular, my boss. Like I would be, I was doing really well for the company, literally. In fact, I remember I was doing so well that and it was at the head office was based in New York and I was vice president of national sales for Canada and the CFO in New York was talking to the CFO in Canada and the CFO came over in Canada came over to tell me this, this conversation or having he said the top guy, the big guy said, in spite of the fact that Wes is black, he's doing well. In <laughs> yes. spite of my handicap or disability or or my perceived disability, because that's what he called it, uh, I'm doing well. And he was so surprised that I was doing well. But every time I would get something to celebrate, somebody would do or say something to damper that celebration. And so over time, I realized that I would never be successful. I'd never get to the level that I think I'm capable of getting if there's somebody standing in my way and having to approve that. And so I said, I went home to my wife. After struggling for so long, and by the way, in the Canadian operation of this company, I was responsible for 80% of their revenue. Wow. 80% of their revenue. And I recall when I got promoted into the position, and I'm doing so well. And then I just said, you know what, let me, one of the guys who was reporting to me was in in a different division, but he was reporting to me. I said, I want to see his employment file. And my boss refused to give it to me. And I said, why? He reports to me. And then finally, after just, you know, I need to see it. And I threatened, I need to see this. They said, he was getting paid 20%, literally 20% more than me. Unbelievable. Of course. And, and so what happened was I experienced all, and I said, I cannot be as successful as I want to be working for somebody else. And I said, um, I went home, talked to my wife. I said, I'm going to, you know, I did a lot of work in terms of research and all this kind of stuff. We had a house at the time. Fortunately, when we got married, we, the first thing we did was invest in a house. Uh, we said, I'm going to start my own company. And here's how I'm going to build. I built a business plan. I did all the things that you're supposed to do when you're going to start a business. And I shopped that business plan to investors and to the banks. I wanted 100000 And every single one of them turned me down. Think about it. If Michael Jordan tells you that you can't play basketball, are you going to listen to him? <laughs> you know, Michael Jordan is one of the best basketball if not the best it's, ever. Exactly. Except he knows what a good basketball player should look like. So you're going to take that personally and you're going to go, man, I shouldn't play basketball then. The bank's jobs were to look for, to loan money. They're professional loaners. And they look at my business plan and said, it sucked. What should I do then? You, am I going to invest in myself or am I going to listen to those people? I invested myself, but I couldn't get the money. Even though I had a home to leverage, they still wouldn't give me the money. Okay, and I saw black men. I talk about representation. I saw black men at the bank, and I pitched them on my idea, and it was at a time when people like him, they had flexibility to do something on their own. And he said, Wes, he saw my business plan. He didn't care about black, white, or magenta. He said, I'm going to support that because he saw a good business plan, and he gave me the $100,000 against my house, That's how I started my business today. I go, my success or failure depends on me, not somebody else.
0: Well, congratulations. It's like we could talk about your business success all day, but I want to pivot a little bit because, you know, we're talking about modeling and leadership. And I think what's come out of the global reckoning since the murder of George Floyd is awareness, especially I would say in the white community, white people have kind of woken up to, oh, wow, this is actually you know, happening. And they've been having conversations, they've been reading books, but really uh, the next step is really action, right? It's like, it's about doing and eliminating. And, And you come out with guns blazing and really rallied in Canada. And one of the main things that you did was launch the Black North Initiative here in Canada. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And that was launched, I believe now, almost two years ago.
1: That's right. It was uh, launched in, uh, in June 2020. So when George Floyd was murdered, like any Black person, especially Black men that saw that, was profoundly affected by it. Because that police officer, when he had his knee in his neck, first of all, when he pulled him out of the Mercedes-Benz, he didn't say, hey, uh, did you, do you work in Wall Street? Hey, did you, do you live in Rosedale? Because I want to know how to treat you based on how wealthy you are. They just dragged him out of a middle-class car that most people can't afford. And they dragged him out of it and treated him with disrespect, okay? Somebody come to, the cops come to my house because there's a disturbance and the neighbors called and the cops break into my house and they see a body with a bullet hole in it and there's blood all over my clothes and I have a gun in my hand. They're gonna say he's presumed innocent. So we're gonna treat him with certain respect, because he's presumed innocent, even though I have all the evidence that suggests that I just committed a crime. He had none of those evidence. He had none of those things. Somebody said this man passed off a $20 bill and the cops didn't say, show me the bill. Tell me what you did or anything. He said, where's the guy? Show me. He's sitting in that car over there. And he opened the door and dragged him out of the car. And even though the man said, I have negative experiences with the police because this happened to me in the past, it didn't matter. And when he was kneeling on his neck, everyone was pleading for his life and he didn't care. He showed disregard for that person's life. So when I saw that, I stood up in my home office and I looked in the mirror and I I saw George Floyd looking back at me. I didn't see his facial features and stuff. I saw a black man looking back at me in the mirror. And that's what the headline was in the Global Mail article. When I look in the mirror, I see George Floyd. And one of the experiences I told was me jogging through my neighborhood. And uh, a white woman fell in front of me, and I hesitated to help her. Why? Because I didn't know she was disoriented. And then she's going to be fighting me off. I'm jogging. I have no identification with me. I'm the only Black man living in the neighborhood. And then my white neighbors see a Black man, like tall guy, you know, you know, in physically decent shape over this white woman on the floor and she's fighting. She called the cops who was white and next thing you know, what's going to happen to me? Are they going to be convinced that I actually live in the neighborhood when they don't see other people like me in the neighborhood? No. Just like Ahmaud Arbery was murdered because he was jogging through a white neighborhood. Jogging. Outrageous. Outrageous. Right? I, I wrote about that and then I started getting calls from my... Colleagues that I've done business with over the years, what can I do to help? And that's when I go, let's come up with a solution. At the end of the day, I have to get in all these calls. Let's form an organization called the Canadian Council of Business Leaders Against Anti-Black Systemic Racism. That's a mouthful, let's call it Black North. We have to name the problem we're trying to solve. Let's not hide from that. So I wanted in the name to say what this organization is all about: the Canadian Council of Business Leaders, business people fighting anti-Black racism, systemic racism in this country. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to start at the top of each of our organizations, and we're going to look around the boardroom table, and we recognize the fact that there are no Black people there. And then, but you need to ask yourself, why? Is there a systemic reason? Part of it, it could be, you remember I talk about Humor Me and they all get in these executives? Part of it is, we only hire former CEOs. We only recruit former CEOs to be on our board. How many of them are Black? None. Then you look in the C-suite. Are there Black people? We only recruit people who have p experience to get into our C-suite. How many of them are Black? None. Those are systemic things. So we look at our organizations at every single rung of the ladder and then go, is there a systemic basis barriers there? to help Black people advance in organization or preventing them from getting into organization to begin with. And let's sign a pledge that we're going to change that, but not just say a pledge we're going to change that indefinitely and you can do it whenever you want. Let's put a timeline on it. And let's put a number, 3.5% should be Black, 3.5% C-suite, 3.5% board, and we're going to do it in five years so that we can uh, look at that organization and go, they're committed to doing this, And then five years later, we can audit that organization. Have they done it? What impact have they made? Then we go to the financial institution, loan and money, and we go, we want you to put aside capital specifically for Black Canadians. And then we're going to look at, okay, how much money have you deployed? How much money in total? How many businesses have been started from Black Canadians as a result of accessing that capital? And by the way, did you make it difficult for them to access the capital? We need to have a say in terms of those people, and you rejecting them and who you reject and why. And so we're looking at systemic changes that we're trying to address, but we're looking to create economic empowerment for the Black community. If I now can work on Bay Street and get the job, then there's no discrimination that allows me to go to the top, and I get there, then all of a sudden it's not just one Black guy living in Rosedale. There are multiple Black people living in Rosedale. And the biases that people have when I jog through the neighborhood won't exist. And I won't have to worry about seeing a white woman fell and hesitate to help her because I wouldn't worry about people calling the police because they go, oh, by the way, yeah, there's like 10 black guys here. That must be Wes. That must be Jim. This must be David.
0: Exactly. And you know that's
1: what I mean? exactly. that, to talk about, addressing systemic barriers. And we have to look at it from that perspective in order for us to address it.
0: Amazing. Amazing. And over the long term, this is what we're talking about, reducing this generational wealth gap. Wes, we could be here for hours, but I know you have like a million other things to do as I do, but uh,
1: <laughs> this is what we do, man. We tell stories, right?
0: I just wanted to really thank you for making the time. It's been a privilege and an honor to to have spent the time with you and thank you for your, the leadership you're providing with Black North Initiatives that we just discussed. I think it's, a, it's an amazing program and I think we need a lot more of that.
1: Stephen, thanks for having
0: me. Thanks for listening to Black and White. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. Black and White is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks for engineer Ian Douglas, my producer and sound designer, Noah Fouts, and executive producers Gerardo Orlando and David Allen Moss. A reminder that my book, Black and White, an intimate multicultural perspective on white advantage and a path to change, is available now online and in bookstores across the US and Canada. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or visit my website at stephendorsey.com. I'm Stephen Dorsey, reminding all of us that we can all be better, do better, so that eventually we can all live better together.